From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. As I wipe away the tears from my puffy red eyes, I can just about discern that it's three o'clock in the afternoon in Manhattan. It's two o'clock in the afternoon in Bogota, Colombia, uh, so I'm told, although I haven't actually been there myself. And if I do look down at my own watch myself, I can just about see that it's eight o'clock at night in London, UK. So, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, and welcome to Latopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. The question we're asking tonight is, with all the emerging opportunities on the net and the radically changing nature of the publishing business itself, can an author now begin to think about making a good living and a name for themselves by going DIY? Theoretically, it's never been easier for an author to publish their own work, the technology is in place, and the means to market are there, courtesy of the internet. And yet, it's still a huge leap for most authors. Tonight, we talk to Darren Laws, an author who has done just that. Hello. Hold it, Darren. Not ready yet. And as the Harry Potter trial ends in New York, we'll also spend some time thinking through the arguments and implications of what could be called a literary weep-off if reporting in the press by some very oddly named journalists is to be believed. We also ponder some new opportunities for an author's revenge on reviewers that the Wild West Web now puts within our reach. And do you really have to go to the expense of visiting a country just to write a good travel guide about it? Here to aid and abet me on the show tonight are from Indianapolis and America's Midwest, writer and historian Beverly Gray, from England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Ballman, and from the County of Kent in the UK, our special guest tonight is writer and self-publisher Darren Laws. Dave, surely it's a writer's prerogative to stalk people who give him or her a, a negative review, isn't it? <laughs> I, that's an interesting thought. I think it's quite reasonable, actually, in the circumstances, of course. Yeah, time on you know, These right. people need to be hunted down, obviously. I think they, they, do. Have, they have no taste. Yes, quite. No class. Yeah, Donna, have you ever, as a woman, cried in court for strategic reasons or otherwise? Actually, I did once, more oh, out yeah. of frustration and because I knew yelling in court would get me thrown in jail. <laughs> but let me tell you, it's not a good idea. Oh, I don't, we'll see. It might work. Who knows? Um, Beverly, as a historian, do you really need to experience firsthand the subject of your book in order to write about it? Do you think? Oh, well, as an historian, I, you know, if you've got a handy time machine, Peter, I'd love to go back well, exactly. so I can experience some of this. Yeah. Uh, probably not. It's what imagination is for. It is, isn't it? Yes. And what expansive counts are for as well. Darren, what makes you cry about the publishing business? Oh, is this only an hour show? I'm afraid so. Um, <laughs> oh, there's so many things. Um, cry, maybe maybe that's a harsh term, but things that make me angry, things like the current trend for celebrity fiction and non-fiction that's ghost-written, um, 
publishing's failure to embrace the internet, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, many many uh, leading publishers have seem- seemingly just failed to explore the opportunities of Web 2.0, especially. You've got a list, actually. You've got a list, yes. Well, okay, well, that was Litopia After Dark. Thank you so much for listening. Um, <laughs> let's continue. Just, just sometimes, it's nice to get through a show without mentioning the words Potter or Kindle, but tonight is not one of those nights. In a federal district court in Manhattan this week, one of the world's richest women came face-to-face with a humble former school librarian, whose name and even whose haircut looks as if they came from the pages of the billionaire's own books. 50-year-old Stephen Van Der Ark was mocked pretty mercilessly in certain sections of the press. The New York Daily News called him a geeky librarian, and they made fun of his hair, describing it as parted down the middle, 70s style. Even the New York Times mocked his haircut twice, poked fun at his name, which really does seem Potter-esque, and archly pointed out that he was a Star Trek fan. No wonder the poor Lord Van der Ark, I'm sorry, I mean Mr. Van der Ark, burst into tears while giving evidence on Tuesday. He portrayed the famous writer as his idol, wrote the Potteresquely named Anemona Hartacollis (laughs) in the New York Times. His true literary love, she said, who had been unaccountably bewitched by the evil money-grubbing forces of publishing, like one of Voldemort's vassals. One day, he testified, Ms. Rowling was singling out his Harry Potter lexicon website out of hundreds of thousands of Potter fan sites on the web for praise. The next, she was accusing him of plagiarism for wanting to turn it into a book. JK herself seems to have come close to tears too, but thankfully she pulled herself together at the very last moment. I really don't want to cry, she said, because I'm British. Well, thank heavens someone out there is teaching our former colonials a lesson or two in stiff upper lipmanship. At the heart of the dispute is the proposed book by Mr. Voldemort, uh, sorry, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Van der Ark, based on his Harry Potter lexicon website. Due to be published by small press RDR Books, their plans were thwarted when J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers joined forces to issue proceedings for copyright infringement, appropriately enough, on Halloween last year. And if that date alone didn't give J.K. pause for thought, she isn't the writer I thought she was. The lawsuit states the infringing book is particularly troubling as it is in direct contravention to to Miss Rowling's repeatedly stated intention to publish her own companion books to the series. RDR Books may not have film studio billions behind them, but they do have a formidable legal team, which includes the Fair Use Project at Stanford University Law School, who argued in RDR's defence. In support of her position, they say, Ms. Rowling appears to claim a monopoly on the right to publish literary reference guides and other non-academic research relating to her own fiction. This is a right no court has ever recognised. It's little to recommend it. If accepted, it would dramatically extend the reach of copyright protection and eliminate an entire genre of literary supplements, uh, third-party reference guides to fiction, which for centuries have helped readers better access, understand, and enjoy literary works. Writing in Salon.com shortly after the suit was first filed, Tim Wu, professor at Columbia Law School, commented, What's it dawned on media companies that fan sites are the kind of marketing that they usually pay hard cash for? They generally left the fans alone. But things turned sour in the fall when the Harry Potter lexicon website announced plans to publish a book version of its fan-written guide to the Potter world. Author J.K. Rowling and publisher Warner Brothers, and uh, publisher, he says, in fact, for, of course, studio, Warner Brothers have sued the lexicon for copyright infringement, exposing the big unanswered question, are fan guides actually illegal? As sympathetic as I am, he goes on, to Rowling and her rights as an author, the answer is no. There is a necessary and healthy line between what the initial author owns and what follow-on or secondary authors get to do. And Rowling is running over that line like the Hogwarts Express. The creators of the HP lexicon may not be as creative as Rowling, but they are authors too and deserve a little respect from the law. 
Professor Wu goes on. Rowling takes the position that she, as the original author, has the right to block the publication of any such guide. In her words, however much an individual claims to love somebody else's work, it does not become theirs to sell. But Rowling is overstepping her bounds, he continues. She has confused the adaptations of her work, which she does own, with discussion of her work, which she doesn't. In court this week, J.K. disagreed. In fact, she clearly believes that she is striking a blow for authors everywhere. She said the theft of her work felt like, quote, an act of betrayal. Britain's Daily Telegraph quoted her saying it had left her unable to continue work on a new novel. She told the court and decimated, quote, my creative work over the last month. She described Mr. Van der Ark's book as sloppy and lazy. And if she loses, and Mr. Van der Ark's book is released, she could lose, quote, the heart to continue with my encyclopedia, she said. Rowling also said she was vehemently anti-censorship and generally supportive of the rights of other authors to write books about her novels. But, she said, Van der Ark had plundered, quote, her prose and merely reprinted it in an A to Z format. J.K.'s lawyer, the uh, Potteresquely named Dale M. Sandali, said the lexicon could hurt Ms. Rowling's ability to sell books and Warner Brothers' interest in marketing movies and merchandise related to Harry Potter. If the guides were published, the New York Times quoted Ms. Sandali as saying, she envisaged readers saying, you know what? I guess I don't really need the rest of the Harry Potter books because I just read the big giveaways. Miss Sandali joked, the New York Times reported, that the harm could even fall upon lawyers. Whether that means, she said, our bills will now be paid, I don't know. That's a lawyer's joke. Ho, ho, ho. J.K. also heard her work described as gibberish by the judge. District Judge Robert Patterson Jr. said that he had read the first half of the first Harry Potter novel to his grandchildren but found the magical world hard to follow, filled with strange names and words that would be gibberish in any other context. It's a very sad story, Judge Patterson said. Litigation isn't always the best way to resolve things. And how right he is. The lawyers of both sides came on strong in their closing arguments, reported the New York Times for her part, quote, Ms. Rowling repeated her first day testimony that she was motivated by outrage, not money. She has said she was so upset by the prospect of Mr. Van der Ark's guide that she was suffering from writer's block. If she loses the case, Ms. Rowling said on Wednesday, quote, the floodgates will open and writers everywhere will lose control of their material. But it's fair to say that many eminent legal experts simply do not agree with her. The, quote, the public has long enjoyed the right to create reference guides that discuss literary work, comment on them, and make them more accessible, said Anthony Falzoni, executive director of Stanford Law University's uh, Fair Use Project, who will serve as counsel on the case. J.K. Rowling, he says, and Warner Brothers are threatening that right. We intend to demonstrate that the Fair Use Doctrine protects the Harry Potter lexicon. The uh, Potteresquely named uh, Professor Mark J. Randazza of Barry University School uh, of Law calls J.K. Rowling, quote, the worst British export since Rick Astley in his blog. I used to think he says that the worst British ex exports were in this order. Rick, Rick Astley, the royal family, the world's wealthiest welfare recipients, and the Spice Girls. Since the Spice Girls were released hot, they're off the list, and J.K. Rowling now tops the list. On his blog, IP lawyer Ron Coleman goes further, calling J.K. Piggy Lady Rowling. Writes a good children's book, he says of her, but in the penumbras and emanations, she's quite the moral poseur. Is Lady Rowling, I wonder what house of Hogwarts she belongs in.
Distinguished copyright expert William Petrie, author of the seven-volume treatise Petrie on Copyright, agrees. On his blog, he concludes, she has herself praised the lexicon a number of times and has used it. I would imagine, but could be wrong, that she could have prevented the suit if she wanted to, but in any event, she is quoted as favouring it. I find that unfortunate, short-sighted, and symptomatic of an attitude that views creations as commodities to be controlled rather than commonly experienced. It's mine and I can do what I want with it, in other words. And in the wider world of fandom, there are some indications that they too may have been given pause for thought by this case. Rowling is a bitch, says one recent blog. There's lots of reasons to hate J.K. Rowling, continues the blogger known as Pseudonomical. She's gained enough money to purchase all of England and still have enough money left to construct a massive supercomputer doomsday machine with which to conquer the remainder of Europe and some of the Netherlands. So, Rowling, who's literally a billionaire, continues the blogger, is standing in front of the press crying about the fact that a fan site has decided to release a book that's designed to help introduce new fans to the broad and complex world of Harry Potter. Did you get that? A woman who is richer than the Queen of England is literally sobbing because some of her biggest fans are trying to publish a book that will only bring more readers to Rowling's own books. Well now, I'd like to know whether this is the defining moment when the fans start to change their minds about their hero and his creator. Beverly, what do you think? Oh, I I go back to what we discussed several months ago, that if she really felt that way, why didn't she cease and desist when the site was up? Because my understanding is a lot of what's in the book has actually already been published on site, on the internet. So, and, and the the whole thing with the uh, fairy tales, the, the spinoff uh, Beatles... I forget the title of it. Seven copies, auctioned off. Yes, the money goes to charity, but how many of her fans would have really enjoyed reading those books too? Mm. So I'm, I, my sympathy is swinging more to the uh, librarian. Darren, you're, you're a publisher and author. Uh, what are your feelings about this? Um, it's, it's a nightmare, really, for J.K. Rowling. She's in a no-win situation now. I mean, from a public relations point of view, she's, she's burned her bridges pretty much. If she wins the case, she's going to seem um, as though she is an evil witch. Uh, and if she loses the case, she's brought on heaps of bad publicity she really didn't need. I f- do feel sorry for the librarian in many cases. He, he has published all of this uh, stuff on the on the web. Um, I'm not a big fan of Harry Potter. Uh, she, J.K. Rowling does a fantastic job um, in encouraging young kids to read and older people to read as well and, and I'm a fan of that yeah. uh, I'm certainly not a fan of this move though that she's made I, I think that she really could have settled this before it got to court um, and everyone could have been a lot happier Do you think this is the if, if, when we look back do you think this could be the moment when the fans say we don't like you anymore I think she, she's brought on a lot of unnecessary negative publicity uh, whether the fans turn or not is another thing they are quite a hardened uh, bunch of people and they, mm. they probably are rooting for her in all honesty uh, a lot of the kids because they actually want to see another Harry Potter novel the one thing that did amuse me though was this is the best excuse I've heard for writer's block for in a long while I guess that will keep the publishers at bay for a, for a bit longer while they wait for, for a draft that's not a Harry Potter novel from yeah, her, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Dave, let's let's get your views. There's kind of a uh, Richard Dawkins kind of <laughs> misquote here, isn't it? It's kind of the God delusion. You know, she's created this thing, and it yeah. uh, it is entirely in her control. And uh, I think she's. I mean, I'd love her to see some of Carol Astra's friends gay slash fic. 
um, around the Harry Potter characters, that would presumably, if this is upsetting, that would send her into apoplexy. Uh, you know, it would be... You can't control this stuff. Once people read it and ingest it, and they make it their own, don't they? Mm. That's how she became uh, famous. How it became so successful was through, you know, proliferated through websites and word of mouth and so on. Because people took it to be their own, she can't kind of have a cake and eat it. I think she's they're, they're, they're insulting their readers or potential readers if they think that you read a spoiler in a, a lexicon of some kind, you think, oh, don't need to read the book now. Mm. You know, do you read well, a book just to get to the key little point, or do you read a book for the whole experience? You know, it's um, and, a bit disingenuous at best, I think. Well, and I find it interesting, Dave, that, that earlier the argument was, well, this gets in the way of the encyclopedia I was going to write, and now it's suddenly been transmuted in the, well, now they won't read the books at all. And knowing how her fans feel about her, I'm thinking, regardless of who else writes a book, a lexicon or whatever, the minute hers comes out, they're going to be champing at the bit because there's going to be so much original material in there. So, and and in her own uh, her own approach. So I, you know, I don't see how this other lexicon could hurt her. Well, it can't. You know, it's. It's a book, it's a tribute to her, it's a tribute to this world she's created, and, and it just seems so bizarre to me that, that she's taking this tack that she has. Well, I'm I think it, it's, of sorry, Harry no. Potter, despite uh, the comments in the uh, chat room there about uh, middle-aged fans. In fact, I happen to be one, but um, come, I, come. I, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that it, it changes my view of Harry Potter and my enjoyment of the stories. But what she has done is she's lost a lot of goodwill for her name. And she wants to write something new. She's going to maybe even switch genres or something. And and she's lost a huge amount of fan goodwill. It's a PR nightmare, isn't it? Well, um, it could be, yeah. Suing fans, breaking them down on the stand. Uh, nobody looks good in this, do they? It's, uh, I think but, it's going to... Okay, Donnie, you've got two hats on as well as Darren. Uh, you're a lawyer and you're a writer. You're writing for children. Um, with your lawyer's hat on, I mean, this is intellectual property. It is property. It's something that you can decide to do with as you wish. And if she doesn't want it, surely she's entitled to determine who can do what with well, it. Well, I, I haven't read the thing, so I don't know. But it, it, from the legal standpoint, the the question is, does the work uh, add anything to the original work? In other words, if it's just a, a series of quotations from Harry Potter, it doesn't provide any analysis, any interpretation of the Harry Potter stories, then guess what? He loses. But... Um, if, as they argue, the work is transformative, it alters the original work, it has new expression, um, it, it's a scholarly analysis or, or provides anything mm. new to it, then he wins. It's fair use. Well, that's right. You've got this, you know, you've got this concept of fair use, which we don't really have. Um, I mean, could you sort of, you know, for the non-U.S., listeners to the podcast, could you just sort of tell us what that means? Well, fair use is what lets, for instance, professors, scholars write about existing works. Um, if, if this guy loses, I think uh, half the English professors in the U.S. are going to um, have some nightmares because everybody... Who- 
teaches any kind of um, English class is is doing an analysis of literary work. It, it allows you to do that. It's fair to comment on other people's work. So if she wins and it really does have an analysis of her work, then it's really going to change the concept of fair use and going to set a precedent. How it's going to affect the the scholarly world. Yeah. There is already a fair use um, because she herself has referred to it to check facts and to check chronology. It could be argued he has put it together and actually put together a chronology of the world she created that she hasn't done. So he has added to it already and she's used that addition that he made. So I think she's actually backing a loser. It's just, um, it's all about money and i think it's more about the movie studio than about her i think it is yes i think that's right i think it's probably initiated by the studio um i don't i have no reason for saying that at all other than the fact that you know i know what these contracts generally tend to be like and if that is the case then she's allowed herself um who knows how willingly to become the sort of spokesperson for for the case but Darren, I mean, Darren, you've got some... Uh, well, yeah, I was going to ask Darren, um, with, your, with your PR hat on now, I mean, if you were heading her crisis management team, what would you well, tell Well, I would have strongly advised her not to have got this to court uh, for a start. I mean, it, it's brought the sort of publicity that the publishers probably couldn't dream of, because if they win this case, uh, they are going to sell this far bigger than, you know, ever before, than, than they ever even realised. Uh, the, the exposure it's received so far is phenomenal. If they do, if they do win the case, which it, it looks as though the way the judge is talking at present there's a very good uh, case that they could win it um they've, they've totally won the whole the whole thing i, the, thought, I thought it was very interesting i mean he, he he basically you know judges don't always say this but he, he basically seemed to be saying well can't you just sort it out guys you know do you well, really yes. want to take this to the wire um yeah it's, it's ridiculous it should never have reached that stage in the first place she should have advisors advising her much stronger than than she obviously has been not to have taken this to court she's uh, admitted that she's a fan of the site that she's used it in the past yeah. um this puts her on a i would imagine on a fairly <laughs> weak ground because she, she's you know looked at this as a published item on the internet and she's approved it and she's she's approved it in the public as well um, so for her now to be saying, oh, but this is going to, going to interfere with my version, my lexicon, that seems a very weak argument. seems to mm. me that she would, um, as, as mentioned previously, uh, her version would, would equal and easily outsell this version. I think the damage that she's done now has probably meant that if she does lose a case, this version will certainly sell in excess of God yeah. knows how many thousand. Um, just looking at the, I mean, I'm a Tolkien fan and I don't really read Harry Potter because I don't get it uh, very much. Um, the, to the whole, um, Harry Potter world, when you actually think about it for a minute, is incredibly thin and two dimensional, isn't it? You know, you've got a school and there's a bunch of boy and girl wizards and they all speak English. Uh, amazingly, and um, there's a couple of other schools around the world, and it's all happened in the last 20 years or so, and that's it. Compare that to the depth of the whole Tolkien um, uh, mythology, and she might be afraid that it's going to be get into a book, and it's not going to be a very big book, rather <laughs> repetitive. It's going to be a bit naff. I want, I, want to, I want to point out something here. Just follow my theory, right? So um, we've got um, Stephen van der Ark. We've got a journalist named Anamona Hartacollis. <laughs> We've got um, the lawyer, Sendali, 
And we've got we've got Professor Wu. Now, <laughs> this is now, a Harry it, Potter adult book. Can you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> Are there any good anagrams in there? <laughs> I wonder. I mean, is is this real, guys? <laughs> and it was f- filed on Halloween. Exactly. That's the clue, isn't it? That's the clue to it. The biggest PR spin ever, couldn't it? If this is a new J.K. Rowling novel just being played out in front of her eyes. Yes. And she's got the money to do it. There's a a zillion books about Harry Potter already out there. There's even one that calls itself Alexica. So if this is real, why pick your biggest fan, the one that has the most publicity, to sue? It's crazy. It makes no sense at all. If I were her PR person, I'd have to tell her to settle quickly and then write the foreword for the lexicon, make peace and make nice. Right now, she looks like a jerk. Yeah. uh, Let's just go around quickly. Um, Who's going to win? Not who should win, but who's who's going to win? Um, Beverly, who do you think is going to win? I have no idea. I it just it's going to come down to the judge and and how the judge rules. He, the judge is going to look at precedent and everything else. Yeah. My own feeling is a U.S. court little guy going up against you know terrorizing big author who's already yeah. cited the work as Dave pointed out. Um, I I rule for the the librarian. I think he's going to win. Okay, uh, Darren? Uh, I think the lawyers are going to win. Um, <laughs> I, wonder, I, also, I wonder who would say that. Yeah. <laughs> I also, okay. yeah, I know, it's, it's so obvious, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I also think that if um, J.K. Rowling wins, she loses because she's going to lose a lot of goodwill. Um, mm. She's just put herself in a very, very difficult position. Uh, that lawyer will come off as being the man who has been crushed by J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Dave? Oh, I think um, the librarian's going to win because, I mean, you know, an Englishman against a Dutchman in an American court right now, come on. Mm. Who's, who's going to win? No, oh, he's, a rich English lady, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's going to be the librarian because he's actually in the right and she's in the wrong, I think. Uh, Donna? I think the geek wins. Uh, fair use should win out. Uh, the judge really gave a pretty broad hint, mm. I think, when he told her to settle. Uh, yeah. Judges will sometimes give the party's a hint, and I, I think she ought to take the hint. If she pr- it is a pretty big hint, isn't it, actually? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If she loses, Americans really do hate losers. I've said it before, oh, and I, I just think that she's going to take a, a huge bashing here. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, on Monday, the travel book publisher Lonely Planet said that it stands by the accuracy of its travel guides following news reports that one of its authors claimed he plagiarized and invented sections of the books. Australian newspapers reported that author Thomas Kernstam, let's not say Potter-esque, Thomas Kernstam, unless this is part of the conspiracy too, claimed he made up parts of the books he wrote, lifted information from other publications and accepted gifts in contravention of Lonely Planet's policies. And CNN quoted him saying that he dealt drugs to supplement poor pay, that he didn't travel to Columbia to write the guidebook um, because, quote, they didn't pay me enough. Kernstam later told the Associated Press that his remarks had been taken out of context. I did not make up sections. I did not plagiarise says Kernstam, who lives in Seattle. Lonely Planet is reviewing the books that Kernstam contributed to, but has so far found nothing inaccurate, said publisher Piers Picard. He said Lonely Planet's reputation was built on the integrity of its books and any inaccuracies would be quickly fixed. Kernstam told the AP that while he had accepted perks, such as discounted hotel rooms and free meals, he, quote, never 
traded positive editorial coverage for any sort of a freebie. Well, this brings into question not just authorial integrity, important though that is, but also the bigger question, really, of travel books in general. It's a generally tough and uh, highly competitive section of the publishing industry, and Lonely Planet needs this kind of publicity like a hole in the head. Under unprecedented assault from the internet, the question I like to contemplate this evening is, is there any future for the traditional travel guide? Beverly? Um, I, I think the internet's pretty well put them on ice. Because now, instead of having to to go find guides and everything, all you have to do is start reading blogs. You know, oh, somebody lives in Colombia. Gee, I think I'll read their blog and see what it's like there, and I can ask my questions of the native. And I think the travel guides are going to be very, very different if they're even in book form anymore. Mm. Dave? Um, I I questioned the veracity of Lonely Planet a bit. When I worked in Seychelles, they described the schools that my good lady wife worked in as Marxist finishing school. Um, And that wasn't entirely the truth, I don't think. Um, They did a bit of marching about with guns, but then again, so do most public school boys in this country. Absolutely. Uh, A time-honored tradition. Absolutely. It goes with a stiff upper lip. Most of the time, they just did English and physics and Creole and all the stuff kids do you know so i think travel guides are doomed because of blogging absolutely because the word of mouth of somebody who's there last week is a bit better than the the in a book that was published a year ago that's true uh donna do you use them at all we use travel books all the time in fact we're trying to decide where to go next year for a birthday trip of mine ending in a zero that i won't mention the first digit and um (laughs) travel books are are helping us make the decision Um, it said a, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 20, Peter. It's, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> it, the, we look through the books and, and um, you know, we're starting with a thousand places to go and uh, working our way through there. Um, when we travel, we take the books with us once we do decide where to go and we definitely use them throughout our trips. Much the same. I, I use travel books. Um, I think the internet will impact on the amount of publishers there are out there and people do first off go to the internet to find out their information uh, my wife does before we go anywhere uh, and I'm always guided by her so um, but then she'll go out to uh, the local bookstore and pick up a travel guide as well because it's something you can yeah. bring with you, you when you visit with it, can't you? Yeah. yeah sure yeah. yeah and have you had experience of Lonely Planet do you like them or um, we've well we, we've use a broad range of the, the travel guides and to be honest we, we found them all to be fairly accurate in, in their description mm. places I mean we, we used one for New York last Christmas and uh, it was fantastic we, we got mm. around got to all the places we needed to we, we obviously done a load of research online before we went um, but the travel guide was an indispensable item uh, every day we went out. It was something mm. that we could refer to. One more example, of course, of the internet eroding, steadily eroding the whole um, you know, uh, bastion of non-fiction publishing. Eroding and also adding to, though, I think. I, I think it's, it's adding another element to it because we found a lot of the uh, hotel reviews quite useful. Um, which you couldn't obviously get in the in the guides because, that, as mentioned earlier, they are up to date and they were maybe posted the week before we went. So mm. that's quite handy. It can also be quite frightening as well because, as you know, a lot of these things are hard to monitor and people can say what they want. In, in many five-star hotel reviews, we saw people that were saying uh, all sorts of extraordinarily bad things about them. And, uh, you know, when you get to these places and, and you actually review them with a, a cold and a 
clear eye and you look at them and you think, well, what were these people talking about? Um, mm-hmm. Is this just a hate campaign because someone maybe didn't get their um, New York Times in the morning or something and, you know, they got out of bed the wrong side? Uh, yeah. You really have to look at, at people's reasons for some of the reviews they do post online. It is, there is one indispensable use for a travel guide that's never going to be replaced by the net, of course, and that is identifying you to a would-be mugger in <laughs> a strange city. You know, it's a very important function for them. That's why they have big gaudy colours covers with you know lots of clear lettering just to explain where you've come from whether you like <laughs> to speak the language how lost you are you know it's like those big london maps are uh, indispensable for that purpose yeah we like to buy those maps with the pictures on them that basically say mug me on the back <laughs> <laughs> it's like that that lovely moment in a la story with people at the cash point isn't it they just take the money and there's a, there's a queue of muggers hello i'm your mugger for the evening <laughs> and they just give them some money as they walk away I thought that was great yeah. same sort of thing well continuing uh, this week's theme of uh, quid pro quo but also trying not to get too too close to my learned friends um, the publishing gossip site Gallicat is reporting that a certain woman's romance author who we won't name for um, uh, just highly protective legal reasons although they do name her is harassing one of her uh, Amazon reviewers According to Gallicat, the author uses Yahoo groups and author groups to browbeat individuals into taking down negative reviews. And it gets worse. In a frightening Amazon romance forum post entitled, quote, Vote down this bitch, please, she says, Well, thanks to XXXX, our PI, that's private investigator, we now have the reviewer's name, her husband's name, her children's names, her granny's and great-granny's name, her address, phone number and email. Lol. Quite interesting. And in my opinion, adds Gallicat, quite creepy. Her actions have led to a backlash on the Amazon Romance Forum, with many readers stating outright that they'll never read her works. I'm astonished at her appalling behaviour, says one reviewer who has been the subject of this online bullying. So, how wrong is this, Beverly? Oh, <laughs> why are you picking on me today? Um, <laughs> keep making me go first. I, I think it's appalling. I, you know, it's if you're going to get in the business, you're putting yourself out there. Not everybody's going to like you. People are going to get up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning and give you a bad review. You just suck it up. You know, it, it's... But it's your baby. As, as far as it's oh, well, your baby, they're trying to strangle at birth. They're trying to stop other people take buying your it. Baby and keep it in the safety of your own home. I mean, it's just like people running for political office. You get out there, the dirt's going to come because people are going to be out there to, to cut you down. I mean, that's you've got to have a thick skin for this stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, <sighs> I just, I mean, we all love good reviews. What amazes me about this is, uh, I, I was thinking we were back in J.K. Rowling land there for a moment because um, <laughs> just, just this amount of protectionism over one's work is, is, is it's very yeah. linked. Um, if you get a bad review, as, as Beverly's just said, you know, suck it up and move on. I mean, I got yeah, a six it's out. all very well for you. I mean, you know, everyone's taking the high moral tone tonight, but you know, no, it's no, your I got work. a six out of ten for my last book uh, on, on a site where I was expecting it. <laughs> At least a seven out of ten, and boy, you know, I mean, 
what do you do? You just move on. Actually, the, the review said some very interesting points and some things I've very much agreed with. But you can't then go harassing people and trying to get them to change their mind. Surely the whole reason that, of putting a book out there uh, to a democratic audience is to allow them to vote, not just to allow them to pat you on the back and say, what <sighs> oh, a wonderful chap you are. You've wrote a wow. fantastic book. You know, yeah. oh. You know, I mean, how boring is that? I mean, oh. I think this this uh, woman really should, uh, I don't know, either up her medication or, or um, <laughs> just, as you say, keep the books to herself. Yeah, Dave, Dave, come on, I'm a revenge dish best eaten cold, isn't it? Oh, uh, well, I for the Klingon one, you know, eaten piping hot, you know. Oh, that's the Klingon version. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, I think that's much better. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the main reason I'm writing for the money rather than the love. I'm going to be much less hurt. Uh, by a negative review. <laughs> That's my justification, I'm, and I'm sticking to it. Um, yeah, no, I think if you put something out in the public domain, you've got to... Ex- Some of these reviews can be vindictive. They can be just plain, downright nasty. Yeah, I think but that's human nature, isn't it? There are, uh, it's justifiable homicide then, isn't it, Donna? Well, you know, if the review is malicious and defamatory, actually actionable, then get the lawyers involved. But for heaven's <laughs> sakes, don't behave like a thug. Look how well that's going for JK. Uh, do any of us Well, she's got the lawyers start involved. Out, but do any of us... Maybe she should have just sorted it out man to man. Man or man. She's crashing and burning here with, with this kind of thuggish and behavior, and none of us are going to... Uh, start out that high. None of us can afford to crash and burn like she's doing. It's just stupid to, to create that kind of goodwill. And if this person is somebody you want a good review from, is bullying them and threatening them going to get you anywhere with them? I don't think so. Beb says, I just like a review. Part of you says, I thought that last comment was 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to go kill him. Oh, you win again, Donna. <laughs> it looks like. There, there are some people out there, though, that uh, post reviews who haven't actually read the books. Yeah, absolutely. They have a, their own reason for doing that, and that's whether that they enjoy a little bit of power out of that, a little bit of a power trip, or they're just looking for a response from the author. That does happen. Uh, quite honestly, if it does happen, though, I mean, the author should have a quiet word with Amazon, and, and Amazon would take those reviews down. I mean, they'll do that. You don't have to go to the lengths of yeah. actually bullying or, or hiring private investigators or anything <laughs> like that to actually see off someone who gives you a bad review. You can also just, uh, you know, quietly, calmly, just respond to the post with a, I don't agree with you, this is why, move on, to heck with you, you know. Well, so I, I don't approve of bullying anybody, so yeah, well. that just, no. Yeah, very level-headed of you. Uh, our main feature tonight is a discussion with writer Darren E. Laws. And that's www.darrenlaws.co.uk. Darren's doing what many other writers are thinking about. He's taken the plunge, and he's set up his own publishing company, Caffeine Nights Publishing. We want to find out how the hows and whys of this brave move and uh, what advice he may have for other writers contemplating something similar. He, his biography posted on his site is very short. Born in East London, Darren now lives in Kent with his wife, numerous goldfish and a hamster. Currently sampling every form of whiskey available, he says Darren divides his time as a public relations manager and a nighttime novelist. So, Darren, I guess that nighttime novelist thing um, really explains the name of the company, Caffeine Nights, does it? it are you, are you highly does. caffeinated right now? Uh, I've had a few. I've had a few today, yes. Um, night shift is just beginning, is it? Night shift is, well, it'll be beginning once uh, once this show ends, actually. I've, I've got to do a Jeez. final edit on the next wow. novel, and uh, I'm just working away on that. So seriously, I mean, what what sort of work has you put in? 
Um, well, I'm quite fortunate in, well, I say fortunate and unfortunate in a way as well. My wife works extremely long hours. She works in London and uh, it allows me to sit here at night and work away until she gets home quite often at about 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening. Right. So um, I do what a full day's work. Yep, I get up in the morning. Uh, usually fr- after I drop my wife off to the station, I will then sit down at the computer and uh, work until it's time to go to work. I'll come home at lunch because I work five minutes away from home. Right. Uh, and I'll do about another 30, 40 minutes there while I uh, have some more coffee. And yeah. then um, I'll come home in the evening and do some more. And it's yeah. not just the writing element, but there's so many elements to, uh, yeah. to that you're involved in being a publisher as well. So it's well, it's, that's that actually what you know. You've just described the lifestyle, not really just of a sort of writer publisher, but of, of any writer. In fact, who's making the break from one, um, you know, from the nine to five to the more irregular um, income that writing generates. And it, it, I think it always involves burning the candle at both ends, usually for about eighteen months or two years. Um, but let's. Let's just take a step back because I'm very curious to know because you you know you're very much in the vanguard of, of this uh, this writer publisher phenomenon. How did you come to to do it? What put what possessed you to do it? Because a lot of people thought about it, but not many people have done it yet. Well, um, the internet has played a, a huge part in um, me doing this. It's, it's enabled me to be able to do this um, and to get a good online presence. Um, and also uh, a worldwide presence. I what, ma- what made you start? What made, what, what made you want to do it? Uh, well, just the, the ability, uh, the fact that I love writing. I mean, it's part of my day job, um, and it's always been part of my life. Uh, right. So the fact that I love storytelling. And so you, you wrote your first book, and I mean, did you get the usual route? Did you try to get it published as interested first? No, my first, second oh, and third didn't. novels are actually sitting in a drawer uh, to the left of me at the minute, uh, hmm. all uh, unpublished, not even published by myself. Uh, so you, uh, you rejected uh, yourself? I rejected myself. <laughs> yes, I rejected myself. And Excellent. Excellent. I did. Uh, because We've they, always got they, very high standards. They're the learning ground. The, you know, the first few novels are learning ground. So, yeah. um, so okay. So, I mean, you know, like all writers, it's sort of in the blood, really. It doesn't matter, really, whether the manuscript is going to pile up or not. You're still going to keep writing. That's what I find most writers are, are like. So the next step that you took then, you, you started to think to yourself, I actually want to get this out in front of more people. I mean, what... What did you do next? Let's sort of follow this through. Um, in, in terms of setting up Caffeine Nights Publishing, um, yeah. the, the next thing I done was search all the avenues in terms of getting this printed and what ways I can, I can get it printed. I strongly uh, disagree with just self-publishing, publishing, say, 5,000 to 7,000 books, sticking them in your loft and hopefully sending them yeah. out to um, yeah. shops or anyone that might want to buy them. A, yeah. that's, uh, it's not a very green or environmentally friendly thing to do. Um, and, and B, uh, it's not the most efficient uh, use of your funding anyway. So mm. print on demand seemed to me to me one of the uh, obvious choices and routes to go down. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're using POD? I'm using POD. Um, it is, it's a far more sustainable way for independent publishers to, to work. Um, be- before you get to that stage, though, what about, what about, let's just go through the whole production process. What about the editing? The editing um, is, is done through uh, <laughs> years. <laughs> it, usually, well, it usually takes about two years for, for me to do a novel between starting writing it, 
to uh, having the, the final edited manuscript. There's a year of writing, and there's a whole year of editing, re-editing, re-editing, re-editing. So you self-edit as well? I self-edit as well, which right. is what I do during my day job. Right. I, I work with journalists, I write articles, I write um, press releases, and if I didn't have faith in my own ability to edit my own work, I would be no good in my day job, and I just feel that I can bring that to my night job as well. Okay, and the cover design? Cover design. I'm. Um, I work with uh, a, a brilliant young uh, designer called Mark Williams, hmm. uh, and also a lot of stock photography, which I can get from again the internet right. at yeah. very decent price. And yeah. on a moment, that's your designer. <laughs> it probably is just because yeah. he's got a plug. Probably be looking for more money now. Um, is, is, yeah. yeah <laughs> Yeah, and Thank I, you, I'm a designer for that, and we, we produce, I think, uh, books that would sit in any uh, bookstore next, and no one would know the difference, in all honesty. Right. The quality's there in the cover, the quality, I believe, is in the writing. If I didn't believe in myself, then I would be a fool. One of the things that kind of does goad me a little bit is the term vanity, which I hear ah, bandied yeah. around only mm. in the publishing industry. Yeah. It's in no other art form that I can think of. Nobody talks about vanity music when someone's publishing their own, or well, publishing, for want of a better word, their own music. Mm. Uh, no one talks about vanity filmmakers who are independent <laughs> yes, filmmakers. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's a term that I do actually find abhorrent. Um, yeah. So you're, are, you're, an indie, you're an indie publisher, basically. I'm an indie publisher. Yeah, that's, we that's, will a better, be look- that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, we're looking, we will be looking at new uh, authors as well to take on board uh, for Cafe Nights Publishing. Well, that, that, that interests me a lot, actually. So you've obviously got, you know, got big plans beyond just publishing your own books. Oh, God, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, so I, you're I going to... The... Sorry, you're going to use the expertise you've acquired producing your own books to put at somebody else's advantage, then? Totally, totally. Mm-hmm. I know how difficult it is to uh, succeed in this industry. And if I can help other people uh, that fit the remit of what we're doing, um, Caffeine Nights Publishing will print a certain style of book. And if it fits within that framework, then for sure, I, I would love to help people out. Well, just looking through the um, actually through another bulletin board, BBC's bulletin board, um, interesting comment um, that was referenced on the Latipia um, site to an author called Brian John, who says, my first novel called On Angel Mountain was turned down by 53 publishers and about as many agents. So I went it alone and self-published. It turned into an instant success and went through three print runs. Now it's sold 12,000 copies. I followed it up with four sequels, which considered together with my first novel, Make Up the Angel Mountain Saga. Then Corgi, which is a, a big publisher, it's part of Transworld, Random House, sent me a fax out of the blue and asked to buy the books. In the last year, they published the first three. The first has already earned out its advance, which is more than can be said of 95% of books published. The moral of this tale, going it alone may well pay dividends. And if a book has strong characters, a rip-roaring storyline, a sense of place and time, and enough atmosphere to affect the reader, it's a fair chance of succeeding. I wonder, Darren, I mean, if you got a fax out of the blue from a major publisher, would you take the money at this stage or what? Um, mm, interesting question. Uh, I've set up the company because I, you know, I want mm. not only to help myself, but I do want to help other people. If I was offered a publishing contract by a major publisher because they'd seen my book and they enjoyed it, uh, that would be... That would be a, a moment, a decision for me. It's, it's not happened so um, hard for me to tell. But people who, I mean, there's so many people. John Grisham uh, started uh, self-publishing uh, with A Time yeah. to Kill, for instance. Yeah. 
um, James Joyce, Ulysses, uh, was self-published. There's, it's not, I mean, if anyone wants to call those guys, you know, vanity publishers, then, you know, wonderful. <laughs> the thing is, the industry is so large, it's hard for it to read every submission that it gets. It gets thousands, as you know, thousands yeah. of people out there writing thousands of submissions. Yeah. It's hard to rise to the top. The way, I, the way I'm working helps me gain a route to market and it might well put me in a position where a publisher comes to speak to me. It's already put me in a position where two literary agents have actually uh, come to speak to me for foreign rights and translation really? rights, really? Uh, Spanish and Japanese. And I've just um, met them this week at the London Book Fair to yeah. uh, firm those deals. So I know this route to market works and I know it would work for other people as well. That, that, would, that would fall within the remit of what we want to do with Caffeine Nights Publishing. It seems to me it takes an incredible amount of time. I mean, just the marketing alone has got to be a huge amount of your time. I don't even have enough time to finish writing the books. I can't imagine doing what you do. How do you manage to pull that off? I'm I'm quite fortunate in some respects. I mean, the, the marketing I've I've got very um, broad knowledge of working in public relations. I mean, how the marketing industry works, and and I actually do my own public relations as well, which is uh, saves a, a a little bit of money that way. Um, there, increasingly, I have to be very very uh, strict with the way I use my time. I have to set set aside a certain amount of time for writing. I still do blogging. I regularly uh, post blogs out to um, various websites uh, that I know are industry-related websites, so I've got that to think about as well. And, yeah, you have to be disciplined in, in what you do. But if you're professional and you're disciplined in whatever you do and you're determined, I think, well, the only thing that can stop you from succeeding will be either a distinct lack of talent or a distinct lack of luck. Hope OH in the chat room wants to know what Caffeine Night's style and genre is. Um, as style and genre, at the moment, um, we're, we're publishing contemporary and crime fiction. But it's, it's with a dark edge, but it's also got humour in it. Uh, much like um, coffee, it's, it's a little bit black at times, but it, it, it can be quite sweet and funny. I mean, one of our, uh, our sort of subheader is fiction aimed at the heart and the head. So it, it makes you think, but they're also page turners there. It's entertaining. It's not meant to change the world. Um, I'm, I'm not proclaiming what I do is literature at any deep level. It's entertaining. It makes it does it will make people think hopefully at the end of the day as well. The genre, um, as I say, anything that falls within that remit of being entertaining, good fiction. Uh, Darren, um, yep. just out of curiosity, have you tried to get your books into the stores at all, or is this strictly online that you sell them? Um, I, I mean, do I, you sell from your own site, or do you sell off Amazon? Or I, I'm, I don't know how that works. That's why I'm asking. If you go to virtually any um, internet bookstore, if you pump in my name, Darren E. Laws, my books will come up. Um, okay. I, I, I've also got them in uh, bookstores. Independent bookstores are more receptive than the chains, I've got to say. Um, but having said that, 
Um, I'm in dialogue and discussion with uh, some of the, the, the chain stores at the minute, and I'm trying to get the books in there. One of the things that frightens off the chains, I think, is the fact that they are POD. I think they see this more as a, a reference to quality, which um, is a mistake. As I say, I think people would be hard pushed if they picked up my novel uh, against any other novel in a bookshop and they said, well, which one's a POD book? Certainly in terms of quality and look and feel, you can't put a difference, but bookstores, uh, especially the chains, I think at the moment have got a problem with that. When you started initially, though, you started strictly online with the online internet stores. Is that am I correct? Yeah. Uh, and, okay. Yeah. Did and you do ebooks as well, or one of the reasons I haven't uh, dabbled with ebooks at the minute is uh, due really to the piracy issue. Um, ah, they are so okay. e- they're so easily copied and passed on um, that for me at present is a, is a little bit of a problem and until the technology can uh, solve some of those issues I think I was wondering I'd, if things like the Kindle would help that since they have their own kind of proprietary format apparently I, I think that would probably help I've also seen this week at the London Book Fair some uh, mobile phone technology which is taking uh, novels to mobile phones and that that is a huge market obviously because so many people have got cell phones and mobile phones yeah, that's what the Japanese are doing, certainly. Okay. It's huge in Japan at the moment, and it's mm-hmm. just coming to Europe as well. I think it's, it's going to be in Europe within a year to two years. And I think if we can have that as a route to market, I mean, I've tried already that one of the novel that I have downloaded from um, a publisher of this uh, that I met at the uh, London Book Fair, I've tried actually seeing if I could forward this uh, novel, which is a, a public domain novel, um, to anyone else, and you can't. You physically cannot e- it copy this or, or pass it on to other people. I, well, I haven't succeeded yet. So that's the technology that, that interests me, yeah. because mm-hmm. these could be used as, uh, as teaser intros to actually get people to go and buy the mm-hmm. physical copies. Um, uh, Darren, um, how do you communicate to your, your potential readers? Um, you know, what sort of relationship do you want with them, and how, how do you attract them, and how do you keep them? Well, a few different ways. Um, f- certainly through the website, I'm using analytics to try and uh, gauge where readers are coming from, from um, where there might be areas that um particularly towns and areas that i could concentrate on especially within the uk uh, where where there would be a a good um sort of base of readers who are obviously logging onto my website to some stage to to read and i'm breaking down the pages that they're viewing and following that way that the internet is offering us so many different ways to uh track an audience um but with with, uh, traditional things like through um, doing publicity in papers and stuff like that I get lots of emails from people who have bought my book that I don't know that just uh, pass on good comments about it and that's always nice to receive I dare say I'll get a bad one one day uh, but yeah, and then you'll want, you'll want to hunt them down and then kill them. Um, oh, well, hire the private eye. Who seems as, so as you're entitled to. Yeah, quite, Indeed. quite right too. Uh, Dave, has um, has Darren convinced you? Um, uh, the website looks good. Just having had a quick look at it there, um, and it, it looks very nice. And I think the whole thing hangs together very well. I think the I think the whole thing with with this POD and breaking into the mainstream stores is going to be a toughie, simply because it's going to be very hard for them to supply books. You know, I mean, I think if I go into a bookshop and I want to buy a book, I tend to want to buy the book then. 
I actually get quite peed off if they say, well, we haven't got it in stock, but we'll order it for you. I'll say, oh, I'll go somewhere else then, because I want to buy it then. And I think that's going to be a big issue for it. I think it's great that there's an opportunity to break the kind of fairly narrow bottleneck of supply. I think you're being quite ethical about it. It's all right, it's your own production, but you're being very careful of, of the quality of your product. I think the flip side of this whole coin, of course, is the Lulus and the complete and utter drivel that gets put onto paper um, in those kinds of sites. And I think you're not quite the same deal as the other stuff. And so I think, yeah, good luck. That's one of the areas that does concern me because they they are – the people that publish a bus ticket are the ones that will um, give POD a bad name and and possibly – could lead to um, the death of what should be a fantastic technology. We've got uh, coming the Espresso uh, book machine. I don't know if you've heard of that, which is uh, currently in America. Um, It's a very small machine that holds a digital catalogue and will print you a novel bound, glued together like any other novel within about seven, well, it's about five minutes at the minute, I think the technology does for about mm. a 300-page novel. So you, you've got a digital catalogue, much like a jukebox. You scroll through it, you pick the novel you want, you go and have your cup of coffee. Uh, whilst you're having your cup of cappuccino, whatever, your book's been printed, it plops off the end, bump, you leave the, the coffee store, the bookstore, wherever you are, with your, your freshly printed book. Right. Uh, that's interesting technology. That's going to be coming um, to the UK, I believe, sometime next year, the year after. What's your pricing uh, well, no, we're talking about? What, uh, what's the, the pricing? The pricing is pretty much standard pricing um, as it is with uh, most books that sell through uh, normal uh, retail stores. I mean, my books um, sell at the minute, well, they're on my website for £6.99, but um, to be honest, what it costs... Um, it, it's an equivalent cost, slightly more expensive than traditional publishing. If I increased the numbers, I would obviously reduce those margins and I could make a bigger profit. Um, also, if the demand increases, I could go traditional printing and then the, the price does exponentially come right down. And again, that you could increase your profit. But it's it's not necessarily about profit. It's about First off, establishing your presence as an mm. author, building mm. an audience, getting people to read and like your books. For me, they're the important factors. And also to produce quality products. It has to be something that engages people that they like. Yeah. Look, uh, just uh, two, two final questions for me. I mean, one, um, just about the money. I mean, do you, you know, do you have to bet the farm on this? Is it something that if, if it all goes horribly wrong, you know, you're going to have to sell the house? No. No, I mean, that's the good thing about the technology. Uh, if, you, if you do this properly and you do it um, with, with – well, you've got to have a, some form of fiscal head. Um, but if you do this properly, you can do it without betting, you know, the whole – as you say, the whole farm on it. Um, okay. it. It's been possible for me to do this uh, without massive investment. Time is my biggest investment. Right. That's my next question. How easy is it really for most writers to consider doing this? And how easy will it ever be, do you think, for them actually to consider this as a, as a realistic option? If anyone thinks this is easy, then um, <laughs> walk a mile in my shoes, as they right. say, trying to write books, publish books, and also then also rolling this out to engage other people uh, in terms of other authors. Uh, I'm already reading through manuscripts that are sent to me. Um, 
it's it is difficult and marketing it, it, it is difficult but it's thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable Mm. All right. Well, we started by asking the question, can an author begin to think now about making a good living and a name for themselves by going DIY? And you're, you're right. Let's go around and uh, find out what everyone uh, thinks. Darren, what's your answer? Making a living. Yeah. Come back to me and ask me that question in about 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would hope it is, actually, because, as I say, I've already picked up um, interest from literary agents uh, actually in the UK and abroad mm. and yes I think if I sell some translation rights some some foreign rights get published by other publishing houses abroad that will certainly supplement so what in a, yeah so, sorry to interrupt so in a way actually at the moment it's more of a sort of advertisement isn't it you know because in, in volume terms for the foreseeable future am I putting words into your mouth if for the foreseeable future you know you are really looking for the old fashioned traditional publishing business to pick up your product if not in the UK then certainly elsewhere not necessarily. What I'm hoping to do is establish a platform um, and to engage other people. If um, other countries uh, for translation rights can can uh, work better, you know, selling my books, that's fine. If other literary agents can do that, that's fine because there are areas that I couldn't do. Um, so right. that would establish me an audience there. It's all about growing an audience. Mm. So... Yeah, I, I still think this can be done on, on my own. Okay, Beverly, do you think we're going to see more and more authors doing this successfully? And that's the, that's the key, really, make, uh, eventually making a good living about doing it like this? I mean, does anything in it appeal to you? Well, the kind of books I'm interested in writing, it, it actually does appeal, Peter. I mean, I can see for the, the kind of niche writing I'm thinking of doing this, this could be a good way to do it. I don't think mm. one should go to, into it with the idea that one's going to be successful. I, I go back to the... Uh, uh, the survival of the rats, the black swan analogy, that if you treat it like a hobby, the way someone who, you know, builds model trains or something, it could be very successful from that perspective. From a financial success, it's like anything else. It's going to depend on luck and how much work you put into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dave, um, do you think this is something that you might consider doing at some point in the future and make a good living out of? Or um I think, well, the question was, do we think uh, that, I don't know, yeah. I think writers might think they might be able to, I don't know. I probably wouldn't do it because of the investment in time and all mm. the rest of it. Uh, having said I'm writing it for the money, I think genuinely if I really thought I wasn't ever going to get published, I'd probably stop writing for a while, but I think I'd start again because it's something I do because I like it. Yeah. I don't know whether... It's scratching that, that itch, isn't it? Yeah, very much. And I, yeah. I don't think I'd ever think, right, I'm now going to produce my own book, maybe as a kind of, in, on my 111th birthday, which I intend to achieve. And if I haven't done it by then, I might say, just go and do this pod for me so I can see one in my hands before I die, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, you know, that, that's the thing, as, as the, the extremes I would go to. Yeah, and Donna, ever ever make a good living out of this? Uh, it, it's not for me. There is no freaking way I would ever do it. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, you know, designing the cover, formatting the manuscript, picking out the paper, the cover weight. My gosh, I don't know anything about that stuff. And the marketing, um, getting shelf space, ISBN numbers, barcodes, the amount of time has got to be huge. I have to give Darren all the credit. It, it yeah. is so much work to do that to me. 
uh, a good editor is worth their weight in gold. Um, I, I look forward to working with a really good editor. I, I couldn't edit myself. Um, and negotiating foreign rights, my God, I, I wouldn't want to do it. Um, I, I, just like an editor, I think a good agent has to be worth their weight in gold. Uh, it's not something I want to do or have time to do or the knowledge to do. <laughs> I think Donna, Donna's just mentioned a, a, a lot of points there that are actually uh, pertinent. Um, all of those things I have ha- actually had to do, um, except for the negotiating the rights, which I'm hoping will come in the future, but uh, very near future, hopefully. Uh, yeah. But having said that, um, I, I guess I'm, I, I think I, I mentioned to you in a, in a previous talk, Peter, that I'm autodidactic to some degree. I'm pretty much self-taught in everything, and I enjoy... Oh, yeah learning and I enjoy, you know, this is a part of life's rich experience, really. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that I'm going to do all these things, uh, you know, perfectly. Uh, but I think people would be hard pushed to tell, as I say, my, my book against um, a book from Random House, probably, <laughs> in all honesty. Fantastic. Well, I, I think we all take our hats off to you. We think you're very brave. We admire what you're doing. But I don't think everyone here is constitutionally... Um, up to the sort of the, the rigours of the self-publishing life. But we, we do wish you all the best. And Darren, I, I gave your personal website out at the beginning. Can you give the, um, the, the company out as well? Yeah, sure. It's www.cnpublishing.co.uk. CN, N for Knights. CN, yep, Caffeine Knights, okay. CN Publishing. Or they can go to the bookstore, which is um, the fi- uh, www.thefictionstore.com. Fantastic. Well, we'll have those in the show notes as well. Thank you very much for for joining us tonight, Darren. We feel very um, privileged to have you come and share your advice. Uh, Tonight, you heard from the Potter-esque Beverly Gray, the (laughs) Tolkien-esque Dave Bartram, (laughs) the entrepreneurial Darren Laws, and the soon-to-be-20 Donna Borman. (laughs) <laughs> thank you very much everyone for contributing everything tonight we've had a great time let's do it all again next week take care night night cheers night night nighty night everyone good night night well that was the show and this is the colophon this podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. On the website, podcast.litopia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do, it looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. 
Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page or you can use the handy feedback form again on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at latopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox, thanking you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. Bye.